Welcome to the podcast. Today we're talking to Andy White, the king of fiend experiential entertainment. A lot of the stuff that we do it is a kind of fantasy to start with. How do you turn the loading bay into the forest that the Gruffalo lives in? It's the process of bringing a fiend to life with big ideas and innovative technology, creating something that customers will enjoy and remember forever. We design attractions that your visitors will love because it's not really designed for us or designed for you. It's designed for your visitors. His agency, Andy White Creative, uses skill and expertise to create entertaining and memorable experience for all kinds of visitor attractions, including theme parks, resorts, and retail destinations. But the bit I love is the bit that the staff, none of it exists apart from someone saying, we want you to do this. We learned loads about Andy's process today in this podcast, and we talked a lot about how design really needs to emotionally connect to our target audience to create a positive visitor experience. It's very simple. We think it, we draw it, and we make it. Welcome to Skip the Queue a podcast that celebrates professionals working in the visitor attraction sector. What do we mean by visitor attractions? Well, it's an umbrella term for a huge range of exciting organisations that are must-sees. Think museums, theme parks, zoos, farms, heritage sites, tour providers, escape rooms, and much, much more. They're tourist hotspots or much-loved local establishments that educate, engage, and excite the general public. Those who work in visitor attractions often pour their heart and soul into providing exceptional experiences for others. In our opinion, they don't get the recognition that they deserve for this. We want to change this. Each episode, we'll share the journeys of inspiring leaders. We'll celebrate their achievements and dig deeper into what really makes their attractions successful, both offline and digitally. Listen and be inspired as industry leaders share their innovative ideas, services and approaches There's plenty of valuable information you can take away and put into action to create better experiences for your own guests. Your hosts for this podcast are myself, Kelly Molson, and Paul Wright. We're the co-founders of Rubber Cheese, an award-winning digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for visitor attractions. Find out how we can create a better experience for you and your guests at rubbercheese.com. Search Skip the Queue on iTunes and Spotify to subscribe. You can find links to every episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast. We hope that you enjoy these interviews. And if there's anyone that you think that we should be talking to, please just send us a message. Andy, it is lovely to have you on our Skip the Queue podcast today. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. So Andy White Creative... Mm -hmm is a themed entertainment design agency. Mm-hmm. What does that even mean, Andy? Explain briefly about what that is. Very simply, we work with businesses to develop visitor attractions, whether that's something huge or something small. Everybody needs visitor attractions and they need help put them together. And we have got a wealth of experience working with a number of clients. So we work with them to develop what they want to do, or maybe they've already got something that they want to enhance. So let's talk about design agencies in general. We're a web development agency, so a lot of what we do is digital platforms, websites. What kind of design is it that you create for visitor attractions, and how do you start? I suppose the area that we work in, you could probably call it experiential. So you're trying to create an atmosphere and an experience for people to come to, So hopefully people will come in and just lose themselves in it. 
because we find the happier that people are, the more money they're likely to spend. <laughs> so there is a very commercial level to this. And we've noticed when we go to good places and they're nicely designed, you don't worry about how much anything costs. You go, yes, I want a photo. Yes, I want a bit of merchandise. Yes, I want a key ring, kind of thing like that. So we create attractions for people that hopefully will help their visitors to spend money. Can you talk us through an example of one of these attractions that you've developed and how you came to kind of put that together? Well, we've done a number of attractions recently for Alton Towers, for CBeebies Land. Uh, We did five of the different experiences for that. And in each case, there was already a suggestion of which brand they wanted to use. So then it was up to us to go, how do you take that brand, which is something that is either a television show or a children's book, how do you turn that into something that people can actually visit and experience for themselves? And that is the kind of challenge of it really, is that a lot of the stuff that we do, it is a kind of fantasy to start with. You know, we did a little bit of work with the Gruffalo at Chestnut World of Adventures. So how do you turn the loading bay of what was previously Professor Burp's bubble ride, how do you turn that into the forest that the Gruffalo lives in? So it's a great challenge because the Gruffalo itself is a story that is on paper. And even the TV movie is a flat mm. thing that you watch on the screen. So you're trying to use all of your ideas to go, well, how do you bring this thing into the real world? And also have it repeatable because a big queue of people, you want them all to have the same experience. This isn't something that can only happen once. It's got to happen like day in, day out, you know, for the whole season. So that's probably one way we go about it. I love this. So it's taking something that is essentially... Intangible. Intangible, (laughs) making it into a tangible physical experience that you are... If you are part of you walk through you yeah. interact with you you know you play with you mm-hmm. sit on that that is essentially yeah what you do and if it's a hotel it's something that you're going to live at or live in yeah so we did a lot of work with warwick castle on the medieval knights village which was great they had a lovely meadow by the river that runs just next to warwick castle and they wanted to put i think it was 50 these lodges on but beyond what the shape of that lodge is what are people going to do when they're there? You know, where are they going to have their dinner? What would be suitable? You know, so you have to think, okay, well, you need something like a kind of medieval banqueting hall. What's that going to look like? So all the time, you're just trying to flesh out all these ideas to create this experience. What activities are going to be going on around it? So you need people on horseback, in armour, having sword fights, walking around, you know, as you're sitting there having your breakfast, looking out the window. That has to be going on, you know, because... People are paying a lot of money to have these experiences. And that experience has got to be more than just four walls and it's a bed. It's know? got to be consistent as well, I suppose, the whole time yeah. they're there. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want people to go along and say, you know, when we went, this was happening. And someone else goes along, oh, when we went, it didn't. Mm. You know, it's trying to maintain that expectation. And I think I think people expect an enormous amount. You know, I think they just expect it's all just going to be there. So I think marketing sometimes can over-egg it a bit, which is a bit dangerous because people go, well, we saw this, we expected this, you know. So you've got to be careful there. It's quite a fine line. So really, we're trying to do things that people love, which is where we came up with this phrase, which was, we design attractions that your visitors will love because it's not really designed for us or designed for you. It's a design for your visitors. So we're thinking of the end user from the word go, what's going to happen to them, 
What are they going to enjoy? What are they going to want to share? Because the more they like it, the more they want to share it. The more they share it, the more that would drive more people to come visit it. The more people that visit, the more sales the attraction will make. So again, it's a very marketable thing in terms of doing the theming work to put in key areas that people want to be photographed with that you can only be with if you pay the money to go and stand in this place or go and visit, that kind of thing. So it has got a very commercial underlying to it. I want to know how... How did you get into this? Because we've spoken to a lot of people on the podcast this season and each of them seem to have really, really exciting jobs. And I kind of want to know, how did you fall into it? Like, did you fall into it? Was this a chosen career path from an early age? It's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I always wanted to make things. I always loved drawing and making things. And I think a long, long time ago, back in the 90s, I figured out that someone had to make them. So at the time, TV was a big influence. So you would see special effects on TV, like Doctor Who and stuff like that. And you'd think, well, someone has to make that. How do they make it and how's it done? So I was always interested in the kind of behind-the-scenes thing. And if you went to the theatre, how were the magic tricks done? You know, how do people levitate? How does it work? So I spent ages and ages reading hundreds of books, which I've still got. And you just kind of immerse yourself in all the things that you're interested in. And then you realise that this kind of flows out into lots of different areas. So in terms of making things, I started out making lots of models. So my first jobs were working as a model maker and did a lot of architectural work. And one of the earliest jobs we did was making models for Legoland, which I think was back in about 1996 for the first layouts for that. So that was probably the first themed attraction that we worked on in terms of doing something physically to making it. But in terms of getting into working in themed attractions, themed attractions really take all the things that I'm interested in. So it is creating that atmosphere. It is using all the magic tricks and all behind-the-scenes things of how can you make this thing happen so that people will walk in and experience it, but without being able to see how it's done or without them even thinking about how it's done, you know? So it kind of is a fusion of all the things that I love best. So you're creating something, you're drawing things, you're communicating ideas, you're working out how it works, and then you're implementing that into the real world in a repeatable way. Because a lot of these things are very kind of engineering-based. It's got to be repeatable, it's got to be hard-working, it's got to be strong, it's got to be safe. But how you hide all of that and make it look like the things that you love the most is a fabulous puzzle. So in terms of how I got into it, it just became a bit of everything. I did a lot of film work, did some TV work, special effects work. And then when I saw the stuff on the films getting demolished at the end of the film, that used to make me quite sad because Mm. it was so cool to see it in person. But then a year later, you'd see it on screen and it wouldn't even have the same impact it had when you were there walking around it, you know. And then because the film industry kind of tailed off, I ended up going into the design side of it. So I stopped making things because I got a bit bored of making other people's designs because what I loved was designing stuff and then making it. And I guess when you start your career, you're quite compartmentalised. You you end up kind of following what someone else is doing or you're kind of, you're not designing in the way that you would design it yourself. So when I realised that you couldn't really design things the way you wanted, if you were making them, I thought, okay, I've got to become a designer. So that was when I started approaching the kind of theme park companies and the the larger organisations to say, look, I've done all these things. I know how all these things work. I think this could be of use to you. And this is what it would look like. So again, it went back to drawing things and designing things. 
just so you could prove what it was that you were talking about, you know, making little model things for proof of concept stuff. We did a lot of retail stuff because shop windows and promotional stuff in shops was kind of like theme park stuff. I think we did like five or six Harrods Christmas grottos. Oh, amazing. Because you had that lovely space to play with and they had the money to make it look really nice. And every year you'd come up with a different design for it. But as well as that, you were doing the promotional stuff. So they would have costume characters. They would have badges that needed artwork. You know, so all of these things, promotional events. But it was all about selling, communicating and selling through the design that you're coming up with. So then with the retail stuff, we did a lot of Disney store stuff, like great big versions of The Incredibles and Nightmare Before Christmas. And seeing that all over Oxford Street is fantastic. It must be really fun to work with such recognised brands as yes. well, be part of that. Yeah. Can you remember what your first um, visitor attraction project was, the first one that you that you kind of did start from scratch? I think the, f- the first one that I was involved with was Splash Landings Hotel, which is at Alton Towers. And I just jumped off doing model making full time. And they were developing this water park, which was the, I think it was world's first hotel and water park at the time or in Europe, I can't remember. But we needed numerous versions of what that layout was. So while they had all the architects and people to work out where things were going to go, I got to come in with masses and masses of plasticine and polystyrene and glue and make the layout, hopefully work out where things were going to fit with inside it, because the plans were fine, but this was back in 2002, so this was before everything being digitally printed and virtual reality. It, it didn't exist. It only existed as far as blueprints and ideas. So I got to spend about 10 months on that, trying to put it together in a way. that They'd already worked out the layout. But we knew where things were going to go, but working out little areas and little features, little details inside that. And I think we did it a couple of times over that time. So that was the first one that we did. So do you still make the models? We haven't done a model for, I think, six or seven years. We did a big model for the Ice Age Mm. project that we did. And that was about eight foot long by about four foot wide because it was so big. And because the models were useful on site, because the people there want to see it, you know, hands-on. You know, they're in the actual space. They're carving polystyrene with a jigsaw or something, you know, they're standing there, like, smashing it all up, and they need to see it immediately. So in that respect, a lot of the digital stuff, unless everybody's got access to that, to have a model is still very, very useful. And I think that there was a few years ago it kind of got looked down upon. I think it seemed quite an old-fashioned way of doing it. But weirdly, the last couple of years, I've seen it sort of come back again. That people love to see a model because you can take it to a trade fair, yeah. take it to an event, everyone can understand it. So, yeah, we still do models sometimes, but they're very, very much proof of concept. It's good that this will work, this will fit. Look, you know, this, this is what it will look like, this is how it works. Because you're trying to convey that to all the people on the team. Mm. But while you know how it works and you know what you're talking about, not necessarily everybody else will understand that oh, there's just a big counterweight behind you, or we need to allow space and give a lever or something, you know. So they're a great way of showing that, just very simply. I'd imagine with 3D printing, Mm -hmm. it'd be easier creating these models now. uh, Do you you ever use that? We haven't used it yet. There's a lot of 3D pre-visualisation done because a lot of the architects 
use a lot of different software to model the space. Yeah. You know, the, the important thing is really with a lot of these projects, you've got to work out everything's going to fit long before anything's built. So it's kind of like an insurance really that you've already gone, look, we've seen it in the space. But in terms of 3D printing stuff, we haven't used it okay. at this point. It's it, really the kind of model making that we would do is very simple to, to prove a point. You know, yeah. by the time you get into three D printing stuff and working it out, yes, if the project's big enough. But in terms of cutting out big characters and stuff, that's very useful because often the animation company's got the file for a certain character. You can get them posed in whatever pose you want them to be. And then it will just sit and machine out mm. all the layers. But you still need people to finish them at the end, you know. And I think that's one of the things with the 3D printing is that it's a very advanced way of making a lump of plastic or a lump of something. But you still need people to spend a lot of time finishing it and making it into something. So for me, I'm kind of old school, I think. I'd rather see someone model it in clay, make a big mould off it. At least you knew what you had. To start with, you know. <laughs> Coming back to that tangible thing as well, being able to kind of yeah. see it, feel more, it. More fun as well, I mean. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I do think so. I, I do think that a lot of the digital stuff has taken a lot of the fun out of it mm. because a lot of the a lot of the fun in this world is seeing the things come into the real world. You know? So if you've got somebody that can physically put their hands on some clay and start making it, you can all stand around it. You can all go, no, can you add a bit more here? Yeah. Oh, I thought it'd be more like this. That, sorry, that's one of the factors you always want to eliminate. That, oh, I thought it would be like this. So all that pre-visualization stuff, if it's only on your screen, is not the same as you've been able to see it in the room and walk around it, you know. So it, for me, I'd always rather it was there. Is that sentence your worst nightmare? Oh, I thought yeah. it would look like this. Yeah. yeah, because that's why we go to so much trouble to make sure there's no doubt. You're trying to get complete clarity on what people are going to actually receive. How do you do that? Because I guess my assumption would be one of your biggest challenges is you, you are collaborating with so many different people. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you know, you're working closely with the venue. Mm-hmm. You're going, you're having to work closely with the people that are building mm-hmm. what your concept is. Yeah. How do you effectively communicate with all of those different people to come up with the end product that you want to see? The best way to make this happen is to have all this worked out at the beginning before anybody else gets their hands on it. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we create a document called a theme book, which is basically a manual. We call it like the ultimate instruction manual for whatever it is that we're creating. So anyone can pick it up, look through it, understand what's going on, where everything's going to be, what it looks like from here, what it looks like from there. And then when you bring in the theme contractors, because of their experience, they can understand that very easily. So the more detailed that document is, the less far off track they can go because you've already thought it out. So the main thing is to make sure that you get people in that can understand it. So, but like you say, how do you get that clarity? It's, yeah, it's not always easy. The more detail you can put in at the start, the more people can see. Because the thing is, there's so many people involved. And what I love about it is that we get to do like a little bit of everybody's job. You know, we get to think it all up from day one. So whereas like at the end, you know, if you thought up like a fabulous kitchen and a themed restaurant, the kitchen staff, that'll be the bit they worry about. But they won't have worried about the entertainment space that I've already thought up. You know, they won't worry about the reception area. But from the start of it, we have to think of the whole thing, you know, like a year, two years in advance 
and make sure you've kind of thought out most areas so that when it is all built, they all kind of work together harmoniously. And it, it's fascinating to see people really in the space at the time. It's such a mammoth task as yeah, well. I, I cannot, yeah. I still can't get my head around how you, I mean, it's, it's hard enough when you're buying a house and you walk in and you think, okay, well, I've got to kind of visualise this in the colours that I would want it in and how my furniture would look in here. But I just can't get my head around the, the scale of some of the projects that you'd work on and how you how you even start. You know, it's such a blank piece of paper. But I, I, guess, I guess there's never really a blank piece of paper. I guess people often come along and they'll say, look, we've got this much space or we've got this much money. You know, so already there's some parameters on it. But I mean, just as as an example, when we did the Furchester Live show, the Furchester Hotel for CBeebies Land at Alton Towers, they had a square box building and they said, look, we've got this space. We want to turn it into a live show. So all you've got basically is a square on a bit of paper. And I know how big that square is, but how do you take that brand and make it into a thing within that space. So I know, well, I've got to theme the outside of it to what the Furchester Hotel should look like. You know, if you're a child and you come along and you go, wow, look, there's a Furchester Hotel, and you want to go in. So I want the queue line to be fun. So I want to put monitors in the windows of the outside of the building. So you might see like the Muppets looking out the windows and moving the curtains, things like that. So from the start, even though you think, it's a blank canvas. It's not because as soon as that brand is brought in, you've suddenly got the rules and the parameters of that world and how it kind of manifests itself. So you're trying to recreate that world within that space. So I know we're going to bring people in. We've got to get people out. So where's the best place to bring people in? Now in the show, they always go in and out through a big revolving door. So I know I want to get that in as an experience for people to come in so they can really feel like they've walked into the hotel and really gone through the same revolving door as they've seen on the show. Because I think if you don't have that, you're going to feel a bit shortchanged. Mm. You know, you, you need to yeah. go in that building and feel like you're there because kids won't go, you know, they won't hold back. They'll go, this isn't right. This isn't what I've seen on telly. I was expecting it to be like this, you know. So also when you go in, I want people to go in and be as if they're in the hotel. Now, Having gone to visit the set, the set is built about four feet off the ground. So you've got the puppeteers standing on the ground. So things like the desk, which is the main area, is up at kind of head height. But to do that in an attraction, you can't, you don't want to bring people in at that height. You want to make it as if the floor is the floor and the desk is on the floor. So that means you've got to recess the area behind the desk for the puppeteers. So you're thinking ahead all the time. You've got to cover it all off. How do you get the puppeteers in? How do you get them out? Where's the back of house? Is there any storage? How are people going to exit? You know, when you bring the group in, how long is the show going to be? What effects are there? And it's terrific because at the start, we get to go in and go, well, this is how we'd like it to be. Do a great theme book for it and then work with BBC and Sesame Street to create the thing before we then hand it over. And it's then built, in that case, it was built by Studios North. They did a terrific job on it. But the bit I love is the bit at the start where none of it exists. None of it exists apart from someone saying, we want you to do this. So can you talk us through your creative process? Because you've talked about the theme book, which I think is is brilliant. And it's really, as you were talking about that, I was thinking, oh, that's our specification document. You know, that's our guide to, that's our guidebook of what we're going to build. So what's your step process you go through from start to get to that point? I imagine like what sort of questions do you have to ask at the very start of the project as well? 
I know that's what we have to do a lot of, and I imagine that's what you have to do too. Well, if you're working with a brand, I think you kind of already know what you're going to do, what's kind of expected. You know, I'll always push to do more. I always want it to be better than it can be. I'm always striving for it to be the best solution that it can be for the budget. But it's how do you make the best experience? You know, it is doing this better than doing that. You know, would this be more involved than that? Is this more interactive, which is more memorable? So I guess it's that. It's, it's how do you push towards that end goal? But it is strange to be able to envisage it very early on and then know that's what you're trying to get to. Because I think at the start, you just feel like, wow, there's so much to communicate. How do I tell all the different people that I want this to happen here? I want that to happen there. I want that to happen there. So I guess you're trying to work out the parameters, which is normally how much space is there, how many people have got to go in and out of this. You know, is this a thing where people are going to be batched? Will they sort of go in for 10 minutes, you know, every five minutes? Or, is that something you know? that, that the attraction will tell you so that, you know, what their expectations are? So, our, you know, our, we, we get given objectives for a site. You know, we want to sell this many tickets. Mm-hmm. We want this many people looking yep. at it. Do they give you a, you know, we are expecting this many visitors or... Well, most of the attractions that we work with tend to be incredibly busy. Mm-hmm. So they're never at a loss for visitors. Okay. <laughs> so they always try to work out, you know, how many people they can get through. Sure. So I'm always trying to push the capacity because I worry about the capacity of a lot of the rides right. because they're small. And there's a, there's a turnaround time for that in terms of getting people on it, then having the ride and them getting off, then the next people getting on and the queue is just getting longer and longer and longer. So if you go to like Disney and you go on Pirates of the Caribbean, one of those boats has got about 30 or 40 people in it, yeah. and it never stops, and there's still a queue, you know? Whereas if you go on a smaller ride, like a log flume or something over here, and you see there's like three or four people per boat, and you can just see that queue getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So often the park will say that we want to get this many people through per hour. But in terms of a show, it's kind of different because you can change the duration of the show, you know, so it might be a 10 minute or a 20 minute yeah. or a half hour kind of thing, or it might be a big outdoor arena thing, or it might be a small indoor experience. So each one is different and it kind of just kind of evolves, you know, as you go through it. You know, if, if there's only this much space, you can't put that many people in it. It has to be this, you know, to keep it safe. So then does it come back to a question of how happy can we keep these guests in this area while they're queuing for this ride? So is that something that you're always conscious of? Conscious I'm always of? surprised at how good people are in queues because... Us Brits love a queue. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, there is a lot of queuing involved and there's only so much you can do to entertain people in the queue, no matter how involved it is. And even then, you know, people don't spend much time doing it. I've, the amount of things we've put into queue lines and then just been seeing people standing next to them and... You just go, there's a thing there you can do. Oh, really? People don't interact sometimes with the yeah, things Yeah, you, you just say well, you could do that. But then things in queue lines often tend to get broken very easily because people are bored and they'll start pulling it and it'll get a lot of grief, you know. So you're trying to make things in a way that are adding to the overall theme and the look of it. But I think the queue line's almost as important as the ride. You know, it's kind of it's getting you ready for the ride. And it's kind of weird if you do go on a ride and there was no queue mm. to run to the front is odd because you haven't had that build up. So I think like a bit of a queue is quite good to make you think, okay, we're in this sort of headspace. This is the atmosphere of this kind of thing. And it just kind of gets you in the right state of mind for it. Yeah, definitely. So, but I I would do as many things as we could to keep people entertained. But for me, it's more about entertaining people. 
Whereas I think a lot of the stuff we see in queue lines is more kind of puzzle based, like can you follow this line or can you find this thing? Whereas I would rather do something that was more kind of animated, like you'd have like some characters or animatronics or maybe have somebody work the area that was in a costume or something that related to it that was a pre-show. So, I mean, you see that in a lot of the larger parts. There is a pre-show, but you still queue before you go into that pre-show, you know. So it's, yeah, but I think generally I am surprised that people don't get crosser in queues because I, I don't like you. <laughs> I've got to say, I hate it. We've got a weird thing, Ritz, about queuing. I don't understand it, but it's very odd. So what would you say is um, a great experience? If you had to bullet point it. I think something that stopped you probably thinking about your real life that day. Like if you go to the cinema and you see a great film, you can, you're so engaged in it that you completely forget. And, you know, then you come out again, you go, yeah, you know, I've forgotten about the gas bill. Yeah, so I think probably things that just completely take you out of that. And I think I, I love a ride where you, you go in and you sit on something and you're taken around, you know, and you're kind of like almost powerless and you, you're in it and you're going to be entertained and stuff's going to happen. You're going to see things, but things that you're not going to see at home, you know, it has to be for me, it has to be larger than life. You know, you spent money to go to a place. So it needs to be immersive in that way. You know, one of the reasons that we put the forest into the CBeebies Land Hotel on the interior of it was because it's just so much fun to see exterior stuff inside. You know, it's things like that, that you just go, oh, this is different. Oh, this is, you know, it just touches a nerve in you somewhere. You just go, oh, this is great. So for me, it's just stuff that takes you out of your real life, makes you almost believe you're in that world of that thing, like Star Tours at Disneyland Paris or something. You know, once you're in there, you're not anywhere else. You know, everything looks like Star Wars. Everything sounds like Star Wars. You know, it's that whole immersive thing when you come out of it and you've had a great experience. But the, the funny thing is people never ask us to come up with ideas for things that they hate. Everything that we do is creating things for people that they love. And everyone says, oh, yeah, we love it. We love it. We had a great time. You love it. You should love it. You know, you don't want to go on something that you go, oh, that was so horrible. I didn't enjoy it at <laughs> all. It the, the purpose. Yeah. <laughs> Because once you love it, you want to go on it again. Or you want to go back, you know, like a great holiday or a great theme park or a great song. You know, you want to go back and do it again. So the more you can tap into that with people, the more people want to come back. So it's not like we're ever trying to persuade people. You know, we're not really selling in that way, going, go on, go on, it'll be really good. You know, you can see it'll be good. So for me, I think an experience is something that takes you right out of your nine-to-five life. And, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that you said at the start of, of the interview was about how you're conscious of where people can take photographs and where they, where mm-hmm. you, you know, encouraging them to share yep. the, that experience. And it's, it's interesting. There's been a whole slate of blogs recently about Instagram and whether that's a good thing for kind of museums and attractions and things, you know, should we be encouraging it? How do you feel about that? I mean, obviously sharing the experience is something that you're happy for them to do, you're keen for them to do. You, well, you you can't share the experience through a photo as well as if you were there. No. So it kind of it doesn't matter how many photos you take, it's never as good as being there. But I think it's really important that you have eye-catching things that people will only see in that place. So we will often put in a significant entrance feature because it becomes like an icon for that attraction and it becomes known for it. And that is so important in terms of, 
getting people to share it and want to go there and want to get their photo with it. So much better than having a big board with a logo behind it that no one really cares about or wants to stand in front of. You know, you, you want to be seen at this iconic thing, you know, like when everyone goes to Universal, they stand by that great big metal globe yeah. thing where the fountains yeah. are. If that wasn't there, you'd just have a big flat plaza. So in that case, everyone would probably just stand in front of the gates. You know, it, it's those things that go, look, I am here, I'm doing this. So even though you are sharing it through a photo, you're making other people want to go and do that. So I kind of think it doesn't matter how many photos that you share. It's never as good as being there, but it's really important to do it. And it's important to consider those things at the start, you know, because like I said earlier, so much of what we're doing is trying to increase the number of people that will go, you know, we're not just doing this for charity. It's about creating like a venue that people want to spend money on and keep going back to. So it is very important. But one of the weird things that we see a lot is that a lot of attractions are kind of hidden from view. So if you turn up at the theme park, if you're at the gaze, you can see a great big bit of metal roller coaster up in the sky. Everyone will make a beeline for that because you can see it from the car park, you can see it from the gaze. Right. If you've got a smaller attraction that's possibly like a dark ride or an indoor thing, people can't see it from the outside. How do they know it's there? How do they know what happens? So even within the park, you would have to market that more to show visitors, no, go on, this is going to happen if you come in here. It's this kind of thing. So that's interesting in terms of sharing photos because people could share photos of that kind of attraction and someone else would look at it and go, I don't even know where that is. You could say, look, it's at this park. You've been there loads of times, you know. So that, that's an interesting challenge on the kind of indoor-outdoor Yeah, experience. I guess that's the beauty of going back to a place as well is that you then rediscover you, yeah. you probably, you know, if you go to a well-known uh, attraction, you know, talk about Warren Towers, you'd go to their biggest roller coaster. You know. But they're the ones that you know about, but then you might necessarily miss some of the smaller well, ones. I was going to say, so, so two things that just sprang to mind. One was Secret Cinema, which we did a few years ago, the Star Wars one, which is fantastic. But they basically put your phone in a plastic bag and they heat seal it so you can't use it. Oh, gosh. Which meant there was no photos yeah. of any of it. But on the flip side of that, before the event, I was going, I don't know what's going to happen here. You, you're just saying, come along to the secret venue and it'll be great. And I'm going, <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> There's quite a leap of faith, you know, because I spent quite a lot of money on this. But it was terrific. But then the other ones, the kind of flip side of that, I would say would be Lapland UK, which is the amazing Christmas attraction. And we took thousands of photos because it's so photogenic. Mm. But you want to be there. You, you, I don't want to look at someone else's photos of it. You know, I want to be there and see my kids meet Father Christmas and have an amazing time. So in that respect, you kind of can't have too many photos, you know, because it's never as good as actually being there in the atmosphere of it. Are you ever asked to create spaces that are Instagrammable? Um, not yet, no. But I think it's at the back of everybody's minds, mm. or it should be, you yeah. know, because it has to be shared mercilessly to get people to come along. Yeah. And also the posts go so fast. You know, you put all your work into doing that post, it's gone, isn't it, in seconds? That's true. Unless yeah. you share it and share it and share it. In terms of trying to get stuff to go viral or marketable, I think it's very tricky and very problematic, but things do tend to fly sometimes, the most unexpected things. Mm. But none of them are as good as being there. Yeah. You know, when you look at someone else's holiday photos, you're not going, oh, these are great photos. You're going, yeah, I want to go there. It's that kind of thing. I guess... 
One of the business challenges that you might have, Andy, is probably a lot of the projects that you work on are quite secret under yes. NDA, <laughs> possibly that you can't talk about. Yes. Yes. So how do you how do you go about promoting yourself? How do you go about finding projects to work on? Yes, it's an interesting question. Um, I would hope that we are reasonably known within the industry, but that only goes so far with the people that you already know. So part of what we've done the last year is thought about how do we begin to market ourselves? How do we get out there to meet new clients? And basically describe what we do because the people we work with that know what we do know it without really thinking about it. But to new clients who don't appreciate how much is involved or what benefit it can have for them, it is a tricky thing to sell. So part of the thinking behind that is we are exhibiting at the Family Attraction Show this year at the NEC, which is on the 6th and 7th of November. We'll be on stand 2350. I'm not reading this off a bit of paper. Don't worry, we <laughs> shall put all of this in the show notes so no one will miss it. So um, if you'd like to come along and meet me and talk about visitor attraction design, that'd be fabulous. But it is very much about trying to get out there and meet new people, but really to help them understand that we can make it happen. Because I think what we're doing is intangible. We are selling people ideas and dreams for things that they want to have happen. And we can help them make it happen. But I think a lot of the time they don't realise that it can be done, you know, or how you'd even start to go about it. So very pleasingly, we picked up a few projects this year where the clients have understood it because we've been able to refine the process and the way that we talk about what we do. And it's very simple. We think it, we draw it, and we make it. I think that summed it up perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, it's a bit more involved behind the scenes, but that's kind of what it comes down to. How would you know before you've created something that is going to be a good experience? Is that just through your experience that you've had and your knowledge and you know working on other projects or is it i don't know is it have you got a secret formula i I think there is a secret formula formula. definitely Um, are you willing to share that or is i can share some of it (laughs) (laughs) um everything that we do is about telling a story so a good story has a beginning a middle and an end so depending on how long that experience is you've got to have a great start you have a great middle and a great finale to it. As long as it's got those things, then you should be onto a winner. Because if you don't, you'll just come out at the end into the daylight and go, oh, I didn't realise it had finished. <laughs> you know? Mm. So there is a formula, but in terms of it being a tangible formula, no, no, you can't no. touch it. it. It is about looking at the key areas, working out what the beats are of the story, how long each bit's going to take, how long people are going to be in there. How long should this effect go on for? If you've got a pre-show, how long does that last? How much do you tell people about what's going to happen, you know, or not? Is it a ride that they can just see it as soon as they walk up to it? In that case, it's quite straightforward. If it's a dark attraction where people have to queue up and go in, then that's a different kind of sell and requires a different kind of marketing. But I think that really it's based on the experience that I know what works. I know what has worked. And it is kind of the same set of rules across all of the industries that we work with. You know, you're trying to create something good, Mm. trying to create something that people will know is good. And you know yourself when you're working on something, whether it could be better than it is, you know. So you just push and push and push until it's as good as it can be. 
So are visitor attractions coming back to you and often like asking you to freshen rides up or add new rides because they just want people to come back and experience new new things? Yes, because it's a constantly evolving process. Things go in and out of fashion. So you, five years ago, your new ride might have been based on something that now isn't that relevant. So it might get a facelift or you'll put a small attraction in. But the onus is always on the operator to come up with something new to entertain next year's visitors. So you're always having to come up with more and more ideas and everybody's in competition with everybody else. So, yes, we are working with people to refresh what they're doing and facelift stuff, which is terrific, you know, because everyone loves to see it look slightly different. And, yeah. I'd imagine you've got clients you've worked for for years then. Yeah. Yeah. But That's I, nice. I, but I can't tell you who they are. <laughs> 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 Andy, it's been really lovely having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for sharing so much of your knowledge today. Thank you very much. You can find links and notes from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast, or search Skip the Queue on iTunes and Spotify to subscribe. Please remember to leave a rating. It helps other people find us. This podcast was brought to you by Rubber Cheese, an award-winning digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for visitor attractions. Find out how we can create a better experience for you and your guests at rubbercheese.com.